One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the History of Russia. As usual, I'm Damon and this is episode 4, A Thunderbolt from Heaven. So in the last episode, we saw the foundation of a new quasi-political entity in the Novgorod area, which in reality was a loose confederation peopled by Scandinavians who run the show, Eastern Slavs, and a smattering of bolts and fins, and we discovered from our various sources that this probably happened at some point in the 9th century, but generally the accepted year is 862, and the man in charge was someone called Rurik, who may or may not have existed. So not the clearest of pictures, and today we're going to look to muddy the waters even more, as we look at the interplay between the Rus and the Byzantines, Although that's not what they called themselves, and I'll talk more about that in a couple of minutes. And while we're on the subject of what to call people, Rus is the term that I'll be using from now on. Well, obviously until the Rus become the Russians, the Belarusians and the Ukrainians. So I'm going to start off with an outline of the Byzantine Empire and look at what was going on down there around the time, or just prior to, the foundation of Novgorod. And then the muddy water comes in because we've got a bit more date-based confusion to go through as we look at the earliest trading expeditions, raids and sieges that the Rus undertook or inflicted upon the Eastern Roman Empire. And we'll also take a look at the discovery, in inverted commas, of a new Rus base. And then finally we'll discover what was going on in Novgorod and what Rurik was up to. And, spoiler alert, it's not a lot but there is one notable event. And to help you with the background on all of this, I'll put a couple of maps and a timeline of the key events up on the website. Okay, all set? 
So let's start with a rough sketch of the Byzantine Empire, or as it's alternatively known, the Eastern Roman Empire, or sometimes just simply Byzantium. So the Byzantine Empire was the continuation of the Roman Empire in its eastern provinces during late antiquity and the Middle Ages, and its capital city was Constantinople, and more of that in a minute. And the empire's heartland for most of its existence was modern-day Turkey, Greece, and the Balkan region of Southeast Europe. Now this eastern part of the old Roman Empire survived the fragmentation and fall of the Western Romans in the 5th century AD, and continued on, and on, and on, for the next 1,000 years, until it finally fell to the Ottoman Turks in the year 1453. And during most of its existence, the empire was undeniably the most powerful economic, cultural and military force in Europe. So Byzantine is a term created after the empire had ceased to exist and its, empire, and its citizens referred to their land simply as the Roman Empire or in Greek, the Vasilia Romaion or Romania and to themselves as Romans or Romaioi. And whilst this Roman state continued and its Roman traditions were maintained, modern historians distinguish Byzantium from its predecessor as it was centred on Constantinople rather than Rome, oriented towards Greek rather than Latin culture and characterised by Eastern Orthodox Christianity. And several events from the 4th to the 6th centuries mark this period of transition, during which the Roman Empire's Greek East and Latin West diverged. So Constantine I, who pretty much started this whole thing off and who was in charge of the empire between 324 and 337, went under, well, undertook a period of reorganisation, just a small period of reorganisation, in which he made Constantinople the new capital, legalised Christianity. And then under one of his successors, Theodosius I, who was in charge between 379 and 395, Christianity became the state religion. And then in the reign of Heraclius, between 610 and 641, Greek was adopted for official use in the place of Latin. Now the borders of this empire fluctuated throughout its long existence, as it went through several cycles of decline and recovery. During the reign of Justinian I, and we're now into the 500s, so between 527 and 565, the empire reached its greatest extent, having reconquered much of the historically Roman western Mediterranean coastlands, including North Africa, Italy and Rome itself which it held on to for more than two centuries. And then we have the war with the Iranian Sasanian dynasty, or Sassanid dynasty, between 602 and 628, which exhausted the empire's resources. And then during the early Arab conquests of the 7th century, it lost its richest provinces, Egypt and Syria, to the Rashidun Caliphate. And then by the time we get to the early to mid 9th century, the empire was going through a period of largely self-imposed upheaval. 
As the emperor between 813 and 820, Leo V, or Leo the Armenian as he was called, had initiated the second period of Byzantine iconoclasm. I'm not going to get too much into the detail on this, but effectively Leo and his church had decided that religious icons and any form of idolatry were a bad thing. And this policy was continued by the two emperors that followed, Michael II, the Amorian, unkindly nicknamed the Stammerer, and Theophilos, who, as well as smashing icons and idols, also found time to personally lead his armies in a long war against the Arabs. And so by the time that Rus Novgorod was supposedly founded, the guy in charge would have either been Michael III, and, and this is probably, probably who was in charge, uh, referred to as the drunkard, or Basil I, and, and this is unlikely because it's probably a bit too late. Uh, Basil's an interesting guy. He was a former peasant, and he was illiterate throughout his life. But he went on to found the Macedonian dynasty, which ruled for the next, well, almost the next 200 years, and which saw the empire reach its greatest extent since the advent of the Muslim conquests. So that brings us up to date in terms of our Russian history narrative. What we're going to do now is take a look at what was surely one of the most beautiful, amazing and magnetic cities on earth, Constantinople or the city of Constantine, which in many ways was the empire. Beautifully and strategically set on the Bosphorus that linked the Mediterranean and the Black Seas and which straddled Europe and Asia, this new Rome formerly called Byzantium, hence the term Byzantine, was from the mid-5th century to the early 13th century the largest and wealthiest city in Europe. And it was famous throughout the Old World for its architectural masterpieces, such as the Hagia or Hagia Sophia, completed in the year 537, and which is said to have changed the history of architecture. It's a very interesting building. Um, it started off as a church. In fact, it was the third iteration of the church that, that was built in the year 537. Uh, then when the Ottoman Turks took over, it reverted to a mosque. Then under Ataturk in Turkey, who was a secular uh, leader of Turkey, it became a museum. And only just recently, I think it was last year, uh, the Turkish authorities decided that it was going to be a mosque again which I think is sad. I visited it when it was a museum and I can tell you this, it's the only building I've ever visited that had, I don't really know how to describe it, but a physical emotional effect on me. It was just awe-inspiring. But also in Constantinople, we had the sacred imperial palace where the emperors lived, the Galata Tower and the Hippodrome. But perhaps the most important were the massive and complex defensive barrier, the double Theodosian walls and moats, which kept the city and its citizens, and in the 9th century the estimated population was around 500,000, safe and impregnable for nearly 900 years, although that didn't stop outsiders trying, as we shall soon see. And economically, Constantinople was a massive powerhouse, 
or more akin to a huge financial magnet or vortex, slowly sucking in everything around it. Well, not everything, but I think you know what I mean. So ideally located, as I've mentioned, Constantinople had an enormous amount of wealth coming in from both trade and pilgrimages. And this economic power was kept in shape by a highly effective civilian bureaucratic professional class of administrators and tax collectors. So no wonder that throughout the ages, various peoples and cultures wanted a huge great piece of it as they were mesmerised and drawn in by all of this money, wealth, beauty and power. Okay, I think I'm waffling on a bit, but I think I've given enough of an overview. And after all, this is a Russian history podcast, not Byzantine Empire podcast. But in my defence, I thought it was important to give some background as the empire and its successor state, the Ottoman Empire, will continue to have a significant impact upon our Russian history story. So I've set the scene. On the one hand, we have a secure, settled, and most importantly, a massively rich southern empire, and on the other, up north, a fierce warlike bunch of Vikings whose DNA and recent history encompasses looting, pillaging and raiding, which some people have bracketed into the uh, trading term. So I wonder what's going to happen here. Well, as they say on commercial TV, don't go anywhere. In the last episode, I said that if I was a betting man, and really I'm not, then my money was on the Rus first encountering the Byzantines in the year 838. Well, let's see if my money is safe. The earliest recorded Rus expedition is documented in the life of St. George of Amastris. St. George was a Byzantine monk and later a partly reluctant bishop. And he describes the Rus as the people known to everyone for their barbarity, ferocity and cruelty, so their reputation somewhat preceded them. But according to his text, they attacked, first off via the Propontis, which is the modern term for the Sea of Marmara, and no doubt they were aiming for Constantinople, but finding the city heavily defended, they continued up the Bosphorus and then turned east and raided Amastris in Paphlagonia, and that's today's Amazra in Turkey, on the southern coast of the Black Sea. So when did this happen? Well, there's the rub. Sometime around 806 is the likely date. But then another source, the 15th century Slavonic life of St. Stephen of Sudea, the invasion or raid is led by a certain Bravlin of the Rus who supposedly devastated Crimea in the 790s and then continued southwards. And then we have Ignatius, the deacon. He thought that the attack had happened during the period of iconoclasm that I mentioned earlier, so at some time before 842, but he notably dated it between the years 825 and 830. And then, of course, as mentioned in the last episode, we have the Frankish court annals, which point to the year being 838 for the first contact between the Byzantines and the Rus. And this was just prior to their joint embassy to the court of Louis the Pious that I also described in the last episode. 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So what's going on here? Well, as we've seen, it won't be the first or the last time we have different sources stating different things. But the consensus, um, what do I mean by consensus? What I think, really, seems to be that there was an initial Rus raid or raids that took place between 7.90 and 8.30, sometime then. And that the 8.38 or 8.39 date reflects a treaty or some kind of diplomatic embassy between the Rus and the Byzantines. Now there's another view that says the first raid took place in the 860s, and we'll come to that, but I'm fairly sure on balance that raids and or embassies took place prior to that date. Either way, whatever the date, I'm declaring that my bet is lost, and I won't be talking about it again. Okay, let's now head back up north to Novgorod and see what's going on in Rurik's neck of the woods. And we've really got the merest scraps to go on, but allegedly in 860, so just prior to the foundation in 862, or some people think in 866, uh, and certainly one of those people was Nestor, writing in his primary chron chronicle, Rurik sends two of his trusted lieutenants, a certain Askold and a certain Deer. Uh, deer is spelled D-I-R. And an army of a few thousand henchmen. Uh, what do I mean by a few? Somewhere between 3,000 and 8,000. I, I think it's nearer the 3,000. In about 200 vessels to lead another raid on the Constantinopian vortex. And by the way, we get the figure of 200 boats from Byzantine sources. And we don't know if they all started off from Novgorod, or just some did, and others joined at later points of the journey. But instead of concentrating on the when, let's look at why. Why, why did this happen? Why now? Well, the theory is that Rurik, as a recent incomer or second generation Rus trader, wants a piece of the Byzantine action. And he maybe knows of weaknesses in the Byzantine capital's defences from the earlier Rus trips. And he's not too worried about treaties that someone else signed 20 odd years ago. However, there's also mention of the Byzantines building a fort just a little too close to the Rus' established Don River trading routes. And maybe it's this that gets Rurik's goat. My only concern, well it's not my only concern, I've got lots of concerns, but... My only concern on this episode is, why isn't Rurik leading the expedition himself? Is he too old? Too lazy? Or he's just a superb delegator? Or maybe 
is just a bit too mythical. Anyway, for whatever reason, Asgold and Deer start their journey to the south, meandering down the riverways and tackling the portages or portages, which in itself is no mean feat as it literally involves dragging each boat across hopefully a narrow strip of land until you find the next bit of deep or safe water. And imagine the scene. I mean, if you're, I don't know, a Slav or Khazar nomad or, or farmer who happens to be on the riverbank when all of a sudden a group of northern Rus start to drag 200 boats, obviously not all at the same time, but one after the other, uh, from one waterway to another. That must have been pretty impressive. And then suddenly, this flotilla comes across a fairly sizable, probably Slavic or Magyar settlement located strategically on a hill in the bend of the Dnieper River. So apparently, the leaders disembarked and supposedly asked the first people they came into contact with, whose town is this? Which you have to agree is concise and to the point. And the answer came, well, because of course they could all speak the same language. There were three brothers. Oh, again, this three brothers thing. Ki, Shuchek and Kurov, who built this place, but they are long dead. And we are their descendants who live here and pay tribute to the Khazars. We then found out that this place is called Kiev, possibly after the dead brother named Ki. And we then find out that Asgold and Deer decide to stay. Uh, they obviously don't see the Khazar tribute thing as a problem, and they eventually take over the settlement and its hinterland. So again, like our Novgorod discovery, this all sounds a bit fanciful, but we do know that the Rus were, Rus were in Kiev in the early 880s, so maybe, just maybe, there is a shred of truth to the whole thing. But more of this another time. We've got a raid to talk about. Because Askold, Deer and their men have now left their new settlement, made their way down the Dnieper and across the Black Sea, before sneaking down the Bosphorus and catching Constantinople completely off guard. And this unpreparedness on the Empire's part was not only because the Rus had moved so quickly, it was also due to the fact that the Romans were preoccupied by the ongoing Arab-Byzantine wars and were therefore unable to respond effectively to the Rus' attack, certainly initially. And we know from our sources that the Emperor Michael, this is the uh, Michael the Drunkard, had left the capital earlier in June 860 to invade the Abbasid Caliphate. So let's sit back, picture the scene. At around half past seven in the evening, just as the sun was going down on June the 18th, 860, which for those of you who like to know, was a Tuesday, a large fleet of roof ships appears like a swarm of wasps or a thunderbolt from heaven, we are told, creating panic amongst the people as they disembark and start pillaging the suburbs. And when we say pillaging, what exactly do we mean here? Well, I'll take a stab. Hundreds or maybe thousands of separate scenes of carnage, murder, mayhem, rape. 
screams and flames filling the air, desperate people running for their lives or hiding and praying whilst probably drunken men stumble about looking for anything, and I say anything, they can get their hands on. That's what pillaging means, and it must have been absolutely flipping terrifying. By the way, if I use the word flipping, I really mean a different word. Unable to do anything to repel the invaders, the patriarch Photius urges the people to implore God and the Theotokos, which means the mother of God in Greek and probably refers to the Virgin Mary, to save the city, which I bet they had time to do as they ran screaming for their lives. And just as a passing thought, I'd suppose that the huge Theodosian walls would have come into play here and done their job of protecting the populace, but maybe by the suburbs we're only talking about those parts of the city that are outside of the walls. But let's not worry too much about the walls, as having devastated the suburbs, the Rus now passed southwards into the Sea of Marmara and fell upon the Isles of the Princes, where the former patriarch, Ignatius of Constantinople, was living in exile. And he tells us that the Rus plundered the dwellings and the monasteries, slaughtering those they captured and taking 22 of the ex-patriarch servants aboard a ship and dismembering them with axes. Which, when you think about it, no, let's not think about it. This mayhem continued up until August the 4th. And then just like that, the Rus are gone. In another of his sermons, Photius thanks heaven for miraculously relieving the city from such a dire threat. Frustratingly though, Photius offers no clue as to the outcome of the raid, or the reasons why the Rus withdrew, but later sources attribute their retreat to the Emperor Michael's speedy return. As the story goes, after Michael and Photius put the veil of the Theotokos into the sea, there arose a tempest which dispersed, dispersed the boats of the barbarians. In later centuries, it was stated that the emperor hurried to the church at Blacarnae and had the robe of the Theotokos carried in procession along the Theodosian walls. This precious Byzantine relic was then dipped symbolically into the sea and a great wind immediately arose and wrecked the Rus ships. Well, whatever happened, and it would appear that the Rus had either plundered enough and their boats were full, or they'd got word that the Emperor was back, or indeed there was a storm, but anyway, off they went. But interestingly, not back to Novgorod. Instead, they went to their newly established HQ in Kiev. And whilst I mentioned Novgorod, what was going on there whilst all of this carnage and activity was happening down in the south? Well, according to the primary chronicle, Rurik remained in power until his death in 879. And on his deathbed, and you can picture the probable scene, the dying man surrounded by suitably emotional, emotional family and kin, he bequeathed his lands to a certain Oleg. Now, Oleg may or may not have been his brother-in-law, and Rurik entrusted into Oleg's hands his son Igor, for Igor was very young. Did any of what I've just said really happen? Again, we just don't know. But the general consensus is that the 879 date is about right, 
whilst the death, deathbed scene is more likely to have been a poetic invention of a later writer that sought to portray a peaceful and orderly transfer of power. Okay, we're going to leave things there for this episode. We've covered the earliest interactions between the Rus and the Byzantines. We've taken a look at the empire and hopefully clarified some of what was going on. Kiev has been discovered, uh, discovered in inverted commas, and is currently ruled in inverted commas by Askold and Deer, who are no doubt spending their time carefully inventorying their ill-gotten gains from their raid on Constantinople. And then finally, in a moment of heart-stopping pathos, we've seen the death of Rurik and the passing of the battle and Igor onto Oleg. And next time, we'll be taking a look at Oleg and Igor, finding out what they do next. And you won't be surprised to hear that it involves further visits to the south. Okay, just before I disappear, just a quick mention that the podcast website is History of Russia, all one word, dot podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com. This is where I post any visual aids such as maps, stats and timelines for any of the episodes that need them. And as I said earlier, I'll be sticking a couple of maps up to accompany this episode. And finally, if you want to get in touch, then either leave me a comment via your podcasting platform of choice, or if you've got a question, then drop me a mail at nordicworld, that's N-O-R-D-I-C world, at outlook.com. Okay, that's it. Until next time, stay safe, keep your head down, and I'll see you soon. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey. It's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.